Well, welcome everybody. Um, today's session is around the psychology of negotiation. So we're going to be looking at some of the sort of psychological forces that underpin negotiations. Uh, what are some of the mistakes that can take place in negotiations? What are some of the myths, misconceptions and mindsets that underpin them? What are sort of some of the psychological tricks that we can use in dealing with difficult situations? Um, so hopefully, whether you're a inexperienced negotiator or a relatively newcomer to this field, there should be some things to take uh, to take from it. For those who don't, who don't know me, I'm Simon Russell. I'm the founder of Behavioral Finance Australia. Uh, I do some of this sort of stuff. I run workshops for on some psychology of negotiations type things with private equity, venture capital, sort of corporate M and A team, super funds, and the like. So this is near and dear to my heart. Uh, and today to have this conversation uh, with me is uh, Elise Margot. Welcome, Elise. Thanks, Simon. It's great to be here to discuss what I love is a good negotiation. Fantastic. Well, I'll let you introduce yeah. yourself pro properly in a second, but just quickly by way of, uh, of format for today. So I'm going to ask Elise a bunch of questions. We'll hopefully have a bit of a dialogue going back and forth. Um, if everybody else, you're welcome to just listen in on mute if, if you choose. However, we would very much welcome any uh, inputs, any questions, comments, experiences. I know there's some experienced negotiators on the line. Okay, so without further ado, perhaps Elise, you might like to kick us off with your experience and background. Oh, I should say, by the way, you have the dubious distinction of working with me um, <laughs> maybe about 15 years ago on some sort of aspects of negotiation. But anyway, let's, let's not prejudice your response. So what, what, what is your... Uh, what is your background? So, yes, Simon, we have worked well together and we didn't spoil each other's negotiations. So this was a good start. Um, so my background, uh, I am a lawyer by training and by profession. I run a business called Legally Speaking, which is a legal services uh, business, which includes a mediation component for commercial mediation, but also um I provide services to entrepreneurs, small to medium businesses. Having worked on the big end of town, I much prefer the smaller end of town this time. I say smaller as in revenue, but larger as in ideas, I like to think, from entrepreneurs and small to medium business. I've also just launched six months ago something called Confidentially Speaking. Um, it is a negotiation business, actually, which seeks to empower and inform and in edu and educate people to take control of their own negotiations. And what we seek to do in a very clear, smallish budget, it doesn't take a lot of money, we assist you to prepare for your negotiation by using a fantastic online tool. Um, and we also provide mediation services and customized negotiation training as well. So that's my my basic background as far as negotiations are concerned where do I think where do I get off saying I, I know about negotiation well I started negotiation when I left uh, literally when I left womb service and started negotiating with my parents and then my siblings and then my friends and everybody else in everyday life but also based on my legal expertise I've negotiated dispute resolution um, and, and uh, major uh, transactional deals on behalf of clients. So I know it both from the commercial transactional to the dispute resolution uh, perspective. Yeah, so when we were working together, we were doing sort of small to medium size, mm. well, when I say that sort of, I don't know, in, in the millions or mm. tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars sort mm. of financial services transactions. That, I mean, that was um, some time ago in the corporate mm. world. And so what sort of disputes or transactions would you be working on currently? 
So my from a transactional perspective, normally sale of business um, and sometimes within uh, venture capital uh, fundraising for clients. So not, rep- not representing the venture capitalists, but actually representing the clients who are, are seeking to raise finance with um, you know, within the building and construction the industry, I've done a fair amount of negotiating both on behalf of developers um, and builders. And so that's that's transactional, but that also has led into disputes. So disputes are often in relation to business disputes, disputing with financial ad- advisors um, that's happened within that, um, within the banking, uh, mediate within the banking and finance sector. So often just I'm the mediator when we just, there have been disputes around banking and finance, uh, transactional deals, employment law, a lot of that, a lot of employee uh, disputes have been involved in those. And so that gives you an example yeah. of what's going on at the moment. So quite quite broad from the sound of it, which is uh, fantastic. So I look forward to hearing the examples that you'd like to pull from across that, uh, that spectrum. But perhaps I can start with sort of mistakes. So if you can maybe give us your sense of the, the common mistakes that you see for people going into negotiation and, and maybe if it's worthwhile, we can break it into sort of the more novice investors, the people who don't do this sort of a day-to-day, this is sort of out of, outside this sort of area of sort of typical expertise versus the more experienced. So if we start with the novice end, say, what, what would you say are sort of some of the common mistakes that you see in negotiations at that end? So I think firstly with a novice negotiator is that they tend to give perhaps too much respect to an experienced negotiator. So they come in with imposter syndrome. And so while they're sitting there, they're thinking, what am I doing here? This person in front of me has been negotiating for years. I, you know, if they say this is how it should go, maybe I need to listen to them. And they're so busy almost listening to the other side that they don't focus on what they're trying to achieve. And, and try and persuade and think, well, you know, I keep saying you've been negotiating since you left the womb. The fact that you're dealing with someone who's, who's negotiated 1,500 deals, so what? You've been negotiating with your entire family, which can be a lot more difficult than a business, you know. So just go in, be prepared and know what you're talking about, but don't worry most of us. Actually, I still feel imposter syndrome sometimes, and I've just got to remember, you know, I know what I'm doing. I'm here. I'm prepared. And I'm ready to persuade. And I just have to have my facts and figures and everything I need to know to go ahead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One one of my reflections just listening to that is how I think it's sometimes embedded in what you receive from mm-hmm. a counterparty, the, the mm-hmm. idea that if you want to do something different from this, then you're going mm-hmm. against the crowd. And yeah. one, one example is, is where they say, oh, here are our standard terms. Here's our standard confidentiality agreement. Uh, and you go, yes, okay. And then so it sort of feels like oh, if I do something different, it's outside of the standard and norm and everyone else has agreed this is the acceptable process. Mm. And I tend to think I feel like I should go back and say, and here are my standard objections. <laughs> I love that. I think, well, firstly, the standard objections because often those standard agreements have standard objections to them because they are standard issues that happen and apply to everyone. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I say, well, you know, I'm not everybody. I, I'm me and we're reaching into a negotiation where the two of us are working on what suits us, not what the rest of the world does. And I also say very clearly contracts are not precedents. 
the operational documents that tell people what they can and cannot do. And so the moment we talk of them as, as precedents, as a basis for negotiation is the wrong way around. I always say, let's work out what we're going to do. And then we'll reduce it to a contract, right? So I, I come in a different end. Very difficult, though, when you're dealing with confidentiality agreements because everybody has their precedents and they're not about to start from scratch. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I, I always say, well, I'm not everybody. Yeah. So let's look. But it's you've got to persuade. It's not good enough. I think this is the importance with a negotiation is always to say it's not good enough to say, but everybody does it. I'm not everybody, so why do you think I should have to do it? What is this is so important that I need to adhere to this? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, to me, it's it's deeply rooted in the that sort of social norm, which is that we or, mm. or the sort of social influence that we follow the norms and the and the precedence of the well, precedence is more sort of a legal term, but mm. what we see <clears throat> from people around us as a guide mm. to our own behaviour, and so it seems embedded. You, you sort of see it not just in those standard agreements mm. and precedent documents, but comparable transactions. This mm. is, these, mm. are the, these are the price points that we've seen other transactions for businesses. Uh, how mm. similar are they? Are those earnings that you on your EBITDA multiples, are they same as my EBITDA multiples? How much can I actually use all that sort of stuff as a guide? And it seems it's, it's sort of difficult to break out of that. It can be. It can be. But I come in and say, well, if I've got it, you know, I, if I can prove my figures, or if it makes sense for us. So I, I start out, I, I certainly in my preparation, because that's prep, I, I always start preparation is key. In my preparation, I would obviously have looked at what the other, you know, comparable transactions, comparable markets, because in order to work out if you're coming in from a reasonable perspective, you should know if there's comparison, what those comparison, what those comparisons are, what the market dictates have been, because the other side is going to know that as well. So it's important to know that. But then if I want to change it, why Why am I unique? What, what is it about my what we're trying to achieve that is different from that where we should not follow the standard or the comparisons? And so it's important in our preparation to start with us having all that data in front of us, having looked at it. Because we, in preparation, might actually say we're not so unique. <laughs> I like to think I'm unique. I would have loved a different price point, but actually the market dictates very differently. I'm going to try and get better at the best I can, but I know there's very little chance that they're going to fall with that because look at this his history and I don't have anything that makes me unique from it. Alternatively is, hey, we're doing something a bit different. Or I'm going to add something else in that makes it a bit different for you. Yeah. Okay. So, so this is sort of at the, mm. as we said, the more novice end. They've sort of perhaps mm. influenced too much by the other party and what other people are doing. What would you say at the more experienced end? What sort of um, mistakes do you see at that end of the spectrum? I think they they it, it's being too confident in your your own self and thinking and and dismissing the other side. So you think you know what you're doing. You've done this a hundred times before. You think you can read the room. Um, you're perhaps a little bit arrogant. And then a young snapper comes in and paints you in a corner because you haven't prepared properly or seen them as a, you know, really worked with them because you thought you would be able to be a bigger influence in the negotiator than you turned out to be. And I, I saw that in one of one of my favorite neg outcome negotiations. It was a difficult negotiation where the other side didn't know who I was. And they thought they were the bees knees of employment law. And I was, they just, they didn't bother to look me up. 
So that it wasn't even that. They hadn't heard of me, thought who the hell is she, never heard of her before, didn't bother to look behind my experience or not. But even so, they just dismissed me. And so, it, you know, they walked into the room, this is what I want, this is how I want it. And I went, no, <laughs> that's not what we're going to do. And he, he didn't know how to handle it because what do you mean this little whippersnapper? And I am. For people who don't know me, I'm short, squat, and squishy, so I'm a little whippersnapper. But I walked into the room and, you know, uh, he just thought he could walk all over me and he didn't have – he hadn't prepared. He hadn't prepared well to think, what if they come in it from a different angle? Um, because I think they'll just be so impressed with who I am, they're just going to go with it. And what happened was his client was completely outplayed, not because we were so brilliant – but because we came in prepared and he was not. So, um, you know, that's I, I see that happen a bit too often. And I think for both novice and experience, lack of preparation happens a lot of time as well. doesn't matter whether you're novice or you're experienced. Yeah. So the, the, it's interesting you mentioned the overconfidence one because <laughs> we're talking about negotiations here, obviously, mm. but that's, it's, it's such a common thing across mm. decision-making generally mm. with people who have, well, it's across the spectrum, but often it's people with lots of information, lots yeah. of experience, lots of expertise, and you and yeah, you, you do build up more expertise leads to more accuracy. You do yeah. get better. Yeah. However, people's confidence tends to increase faster than their uh, than their accuracy, so you can end up with that sort of overconfidence gap that you're not quite as yeah, you're good, but you're not quite as good as you you often think. So it's interesting you've picked that up in a negotiation context as well. Yeah, it happens. And when you're a mediator, you see it on both sides of the coin because you see both sides negotiate trying to help them. Because as a mediator, you're a dispute resolution specialist as well as a negotiation specialist. And it's a great place to pick up where people <laughs> where people play out badly. Yeah, sure. And so what about sort of the – I'm interested in perhaps what you'd call a, a, a myth or a misconception or maybe a sort of an unhelpful mindset around how people – think about negotiations. So, so what sort of things have you seen where people just walk in with the wrong sort of the wrong idea about what they're trying to do or what what a negotiation should be? What what examples do you have like that? Well my the biggest myth to me is that a negotiation is a compromise. Um, that's one and the second part of the the myth is that um, if a, for a negotiation to be successful both parties should walk out unhappy. Um, <laughs> that kind of adds to it. And I say that because that's rubbish. I mean, yes, you know, you hear the word negotiation and it, it, it connotes, you know, n not being able to demand of someone something. So you can't demand it. You've got to negotiate. You've got to get that, you know, persuade. Negotiation, I think, is a way of persuasion and listening. And so, we we often say, well, as a co I mean, I hear it all the time, whether it's mediation, which is a, a formal form of negotiation or, you know, dispute resolution, oh, we don't have to compromise. And I always say, well, if you prepare properly and you know what you're looking for and you learn how to prepare and persuade, you may not. And the perfect example of that I find is um, where most of the time, most of the time, both parties tend to be happy is when we're talking about someone looking for a new job especially let's say in a professional concept and you're dealing with the potential employee who's looked at the market and feels they, for example, would be entitled to a salary figure of let's say before bonus $100,000 um, plus super 
to $120,000. So that's in their position statement. They they know, they believe that's their worth and they're happy to accept anything around there, right? And then you have an employer who's done the same looking at the market and says, well, for that kind of employee, we would pay between $95,000 and $112,000. That would be acceptable to us. So if the parties meet in the middle and they, well, you know, I don't know how negotiation goes ahead, but it's a good negotiation. They end up, the employee doesn't get 120000 but the salary is 108000 plus super. The employee is happy. That's within their base range. So is the employer. And they walk away. No one's compromised anything. Um, so, you know, there's another way of saying, well, you know, I might, for what I want to give, what I want, I might have to give something that isn't a problem for me. That's not a compromise. It's just making it better for the other side so we've got to take our mindset away from you know both parties need to be unhappy or or I had to compromise it's like how do I persuade in a way that I get my favored outcome that is also acceptable to the other side and persuade them in a manner that they'll walk away if not ecstatic that we're both happy and we want to work together yeah it's again I, I quite like the idea that people well, not the idea that people do this, but I, I like that you've picked it up, that people are feeling that the other, each party has to be unhappy because there was there was a study, which I'm going to struggle to remember in detail now, but they, they had a couple of different groups of people where they, they set it up. So effectively everything was the same, except one group of people ultimately had a, a sort of a worse negotiated, objectively a worse negotiated outcome. And so you had these two, these two groups and the, it wasn't, it didn't turn out to be, um, so So when you're looking at how happy do I feel with what I've mm. negotiated, objectively, you should look at these measures and go, oh, well, the people who negotiated this higher amount, they should be happier mm. than the people who negotiated this lower amount. But what was what was really happening was that the people were looking at their negotiating partner, who they, mm. the people they negotiated with, judging how happy or unhappy they were with their mm. side of the deal. And if that, if their counterparty was unhappy, oh, I must have got a good deal. If, if they've <laughs> begrudgingly accepted my offer, that means I've really, I've nailed them to the floor and I've, I've really got a good deal. It wasn't actually the objective outcome that put, that really mattered. So, uh, yeah, so I, I quite like that. That's mm-hmm. partly is because you don't really know often what a good deal is and you're sort yeah. of guessing somewhat, aren't you? So you look at the other party and go, well, if you, you're unhappy, then maybe I've got a good I've got yeah. a good deal. And your deal, and I find so many times with the deal is that people are looking at a short-term monetary perspective right and I always say when you're looking at what is a good outcome and that's in preparation before you step into the room look at things from yes there's a monetary concept but what does the monetary concept mean over the long term is a relationship more important is um you know is it that you know you a networking opportunity what there might be stuff that isn't a financial it's not financially based but it is professionally more enhances or it might be, you know, you'll pay me less, but you're going to give me more uh, annual leave, right? Well, I only have to work, I'm coming back to employees, but, you know, I only have to work four days a week because I want to go and learn surfing (laughs) or I want to spend more time with my family or whatever it is. And that might be a good negotiation. So we don't even have within us, if we don't prepare properly, we haven't even evaluated what a good uh, outcome is. And if you don't know, if your outcome is based purely on what the other person looks like, instead of, I had a set of criteria I needed for a favoured outcome. I'd work through it. I'd prioritise what was important to me commercially, practically, and for 
short and long-term needs. And I achieved pretty much what I was looking for, even if the other party is ecstatic. I've done brilliantly and I shouldn't care. And I always say to people, you know, you shouldn't care about the other party. I mean, you shouldn't got a business relationship but you should yeah, or whether you could have got a better outcome right because many a time we don't even know if we could have we don't know what the other party was with where they're willing to go if it fits your favored outcomes you've done brilliantly if you don't know what your favorite outcomes are and you're reliant on whether someone looks unhappy well i, I think it's a pretty <laughs> pretty bad negotiation yeah it's, it's interesting one of the things that i often do with groups yeah. is I, I break them into pairs and give them a little negotiating exercise okay. and yeah. they spend so much time trying to get the best price it's a business transaction mm. scenario mm. And, and yes if they mm. get 21 million dollars instead of 22 if you're the, mm. the buyer yeah it's a slightly mm. better deal but the main and they've got only five minutes to negotiate mm. this, so it's just a quick little thing you do it mm. in a workshop exercise but the main thing is in this exercise, there's value for both the buyer and the seller. There's a, there's a quite yeah. wide range in which actually the seller's yeah. quite happy with any price in this range, really, because otherwise yeah. they're going to have to shut the thing down. And the buyer, well, they'd have to build a new plant and they don't want to do that. So they could pick yeah. this up for cheap. So basically, the main point is can you just get to an agreement in the five minutes? Because if you yeah. can, both of you will be happy versus yeah. sort of bickering about sort of dollars and cents here and actually ending up with nothing. So. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, and there's yeah. a couple of bits that, um, so I mean, there's a thing called a fixed pie bias that you've probably come across where people mm -hmm. tend to assume that it's a, there's a fixed sort of pool of benefits that we're just mm -hmm. trying to divide between us versus actually growing the pie. And I think the employment example is a, a great one. Yeah, uh, you, you, yeah, and you know, amazingly with employment, I always say, well, what else could you get out of? Right. I, I had one person do, you know, with the negotiating and they asked for like a dress allowance. Um, they said, okay, you know, I always have to spend a lot on my clothes here. And so, um, you know, whatever you pay me, it's coming out to buy suits or things like that because that's the nature of my job. How about you, you you know, you give me a dress allowance and you pay for my dry cleaning. Um, <laughs> and I was I kind of went to thought that's interesting. I mean, I've joked about it occasionally. I've never thought of asking it across the table. And, you know, the people thought about it and they said, well, if you can put through an expense as an expense to the business and have a wardrobe budget and they could do that. I don't know. They were looking at a tax concept and somehow they managed to finagle the wardrobe um, and the dry cleaning and this person was ecstatic. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, even in a business context, so for example, mm -hmm. in succession planning in a, small business where you've got sort of the older equity owner who's exiting the business and a newer person coming in who's maybe sort of a younger employee like mm. in that scenario so often you see the the, the two it's a, a conversation about price but there's so much more in what's happening with the clients mm. and um, do i need some continuing employment mm. if i'm exiting the business mm. and uh, but i need some financing if i'm growing the business as mm. a younger employee there's so many other terms there that just need to be mm. sort of expanded and looked at sort of in in that's sort of a broader context, I think. Well, succession planning is just, it's that's an open slathery of, of options um, and what you want. And again, it comes back to preparation and thinking long before you even walk into the room with the other person, what is important to you and where you're heading with it. And of course, in a succession planning concept for business, as you said, the client, you know, keeping the clients and keeping uh, the 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 value of the business to the outside world 
you know, is important or it might not be. It might not be. You know, it could be the employee thinks like, let the person be happy. <laughs> I'll get the business. And then I'm going to absolutely change everything around here. And we're actually looking for a completely different set of clients. That could happen as well. But it's it, there's so much opportunity in succession planning to think create. I call it thinking creatively, thinking outside of monetary amount and more over long-term relationship and where you're heading. Yeah. One thing I, I think if, if you would ask me common mistakes that I see amongst mm. Um, experienced investors, one of the things I probably would touch on would be um, how how ineffective they are at using things like anchors. So that they, if I walk into a group, they, yeah. yeah, they've heard of anchoring. Yeah, they, they know the concept of it. But how then do you apply it in a, in a negotiating scenario? Should you go first and put a, a number on the table, like in your employment scenario, whether it's a business transaction, should you say, this is the amount I want? Should you let them speak first and say, well, how much do you want for the business? Uh, for example, should I put that number in a firm offer or should I be casually thrown into a, into a discussion at the start? Should should I be thinking about anchoring all the other terms and conditions? What anchor should I use? How do I defend against it? And people, they they can't translate, yeah, I've maybe read a book about it or I heard about it or I saw a YouTube video or, a, or something. And how do I actually then use it in a negotiating scenario? I, I sort of see disconnect. What's your experience with using sort of anchors and, Okay, so just for people, I'm sure most of you know, but an anchor is basically who actually sets it. So let's use amount. So if we're looking at the cost of a business, like the purchase price, um, who who's who's who sets the first figure into the negotiation, who positions. So if um, you, it's the purchaser might say, well, I'm only prepared to pay a million dollars. Right, and they anchor it. And what happens is the theory of anchoring is once that a million dollars is on the table, um, it's very unlikely it's going to go to 10 million and it's very unlikely it's going to go to 500,000. But what you've got to be careful of with anchoring is if you anchor incorrectly or inappropriately, a person can walk away as well because you might, um, I always give the example of when I was in a market <laughs> and I just, I offered something so bad, I was chased out of the, 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 the shop with someone with a knife because they said I had insulted them. Yes, it was in the Middle East, just say. But um, that's not, so you've got to be careful of how you anchor and you've got to, the person who anchors really has to have a good knowledge of what they prepare to pay, where they're heading and the persuasive technique. So I would always say, you know, some people say, I never, I never put it, I never start. I always let the other side start. Well, that could mean neither of you start. I've seen people walking like little dogs sniffing around each other <laughs> and not putting forward in a mouth. Um, I won't I, I won't use anchoring if I'm not quite sure. So I won't anchor if I'm very unsure of price. I'm just trying to get a sense of where people are at. I will anchor if I have a very firm view of where I'm heading and what I'm prepared to pay because that way I can I can have control over where the pricing goes. Mm, yeah. Yeah, have you have you read a book called Never Split the Difference? Have you come across that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in, in that scenario, um, is it, I think it's Chris Voss, the author, is mm. saying, "Oh, you shouldn't, you shouldn't go first. And and the scenario he gives is hostage negotiation. And the problem is that, well, if I say, "Yeah, you've got Aunt Mary, and I'll offer you five hundred thousand dollars for Aunt Mary," we'd love her mm. back. Uh, and oh, five hundred thousand. Yeah, I have to remortgage the house. But yeah, we can do it. I don't know. That, that's sort of mm. the sort of thinking that you have as you're trying to get mm. to negotiate for Aunt Mary's release. Mm. But the people who have got Aunt Mary, who are probably highly impoverished Somali mm. pirates or something, mm. living in a shanty town, for whom five hundred thousand dollars would be an absolute godsend for their, them and their whole village and 
and frankly, they'd be quite happy with five thousand mm-hmm. dollars. And so he would say, "Don't go with your, as you say, with your anchor point when you really don't quite understand mm-hmm. what that you're thinking. Five hundred thousand, that's reasonable. I'm glad it's not mm-hmm. ten million. But mm-hmm. the Somali pirates thinking, my, thank goodness they said five hundred thousand. I'd be quite happy with five thousand. So I quite yeah. like that. But, but one one wrinkle I would add to it, I think, is that I think that the, the words you used up front were something like, um, or oh, the most I'm willing to pay is a million dollars or something, something yeah. like that, where yeah. there you've used an anchor and you've embedded it in a, an offer price yeah. in one. So effectively, yeah. that to me, there's more risk that they now walk away because, well, they wanted two million, for example, and I've just said I'm not paying more than one million. Whereas I could use an anchor just in casually say well you know other businesses oh, some other sellers uh, some other purchasers might only be willing to offer you 500,000 for this but I'll give yeah. you a million now now yeah. I've used an anchor and then I've given you another an offer so I've, I've used the concept without locking me into I, I guess something that they can walk away from yeah I think the, always the way you persuade the offer so when I, I must say, when I go in and speak, well, I don't think it applies anymore for buying a car because they're so scarce nowadays. <laughs> but in the old days, if you were to buy a car, I would I would use that ultimatum because I was going to walk away. So if I didn't, so you your anchoring depends on where you're at. How much do you want the deal? And do you stop less? Or, you know, they're starting, you've looked at the market and the market is at like $50,000, let's say. And you say, well, I'm not, I'm telling you now, I'm not prepared to make pay more than 40, right? You know that they might walk away, but you you pretty much know when you're going to walk away. And so you want to you want to stop them from playing with you. So it all depends on where you're going with it. If you're opening up for business or whether you want to shatter it to a very firm anchor. So it 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 really depends on the persuasive and what you're hoping to achieve. Yeah, one of the feedback I or some of the feedback I get from say business trans people doing business transactions of private equity venture capital or corporate MA mm-hmm. say mm-hmm. is that that it's difficult to use an anchor for a purchase price because mm-hmm. well for larger businesses they've got some idea what it's worth they can see its profitability mm-hmm. and multiply it by a standard multiple based on historical transactions or mm-hmm. uh, look at its asset value and it's in the I don't know they've, they've got some idea what the price what the value of this thing is so if I walk up and say I'm only willing to pay offer you 50 million and they're going well I can see it makes 50 million dollars per annum well I could goodbye that's a very short conversation yeah. um however and so but okay so fine me walking with my ridiculously low anchor mm. might not help in that scenario mm. but then when I come into some of the terms where um, I don't know, like a non-compete term, for example. Mm. Okay, so I'm buying a business. I don't want the the person I bought it for to start up an equivalent business mm. for some period of time in my region to compete and steal my customers, mm. say. Mm. How long should that be? Mm. Now, uh, quite often the, the vendor of a business has got no idea how long they, they've ever done that before. So mm. I could rock up and say, well, I could have a five-year non-compete. No, no, let's not make it five years. Let's make it three years. Mm. Now, you, you might tell me three years is still unreasonable, but my point, my point <laughs> five Should I put I'm my legal hats on here, Simon? <laughs> <Should> I... <laughs> but but, that's, but the, my point was, I guess, I've got some idea what I want. The other person probably doesn't. 
there's less anchoring around that because they haven't seen a mm. whole bunch of other transactions and other non-competes probably. Mm. Maybe their legal team has. Hopefully their legal team has. But that, that maybe the, anchor, the the broad point here is that maybe anchoring, even if it doesn't work at the purchase price level, might mm. work out a whole lot of other points across a transaction or a negotiation where there are numerical things you have to negotiate. Well, I think, you know, anchoring is, is good to have in your toolkit, but I think focusing too much on it can also cause problems. So in my preparation, the first thing I'm looking at is really the the whole thing. So if it was a contract negotiation, before we even walked into the room, we have what I would call my contract wheel where the, the you, you would prepare what would be in this kind of deal. What would the terms be? What would the finance? It wouldn't just be finance, but what would that be? What can I live with here? What is important to me? What do I give away? What do I have to walk away from? Once I've got all that in, I can then use anchoring. But I think, you know, I don't obsess about it. It's just another tool that if if we either I, I might decide I need to go in with this because I'm looking at the market, they might come in too high or too low, or it might be I'm prepared to sniff around and just see what's happening. But I, I need to have a much broader perspective of what I'm trying to achieve, and I play that in my toolbox. Yeah, those things sound mm. more strategic to me versus mm. anchoring sounds mm. sort of more tactical. Once I've got down to that level of detail, maybe that might help me yeah. uh, at a tactical level. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what do you also think about about these? Um, I've got a, a sort of a bit of a hit list of things, like, again, I see amongst more sophisticated investors, yeah. sophisticated negotiators, or more experienced ones. Uh, and I bunch them all into sort of, I guess, thinking maybe too narrowly. So one is... Uh, a lack of willingness or ability or motivation, perhaps, I'm not sure w what, to take, to sufficiently take into consideration and think through the perspective of the other party. Mm. That That is huge. And so um, what I think is problematic, that's not preparing appropriately or enough for your negotiation. So part of preparing is, working out what you're looking for, prioritizing what's important to you. And I call it, you know, being able to support what you have. The second most important part is persuading, right? So if we need to persuade, how do I persuade the other side in preparation as opposed to when I just think this is what I want. These are my, my demand level, my hostage demand levels. And one of the things I say to test your art persuasion, pretend you are the other person and put that offer to them that you think you're making to them and think whether you'd accept it if someone else made the, the same offer as you hoping to make the other side. If you look at that and say, not in a million years, mm -hmm. never happened, then you know that you, you, you're not even ready to have the conversation with the other side. You might still be able to have the same ask but you might have to reframe it in a way that you'd find acceptable if someone made that offer to you. So don't see a negotiation as a list of demands, which you hope some will, will fall where they may, but a really tactical, prepared way of looking at what you want, your favorite outcome, and how you're going to persuade. And that needs to be done in preparation, not in the room. I mean, in the room, you need to adapt and obviously take that off. Yeah. Yeah. You want to come to that question there from, uh, from, from Carl? Please, what are your thoughts, pros, cons, perhaps, regarding the idea of generally seeking something in return whenever I give something the other party is seeking? I don't necessarily, I don't think 
that's necessary. Um, you know, a, a quid pro quo every time we give something, we need to look at it holistically. So um, I might not necessarily, you know, I might be prepared to give you 30 things if you give me $20 million, right, as a purchase <laughs> price, right? I might be able to say, I'm prepared to give you $20 million, you know, twenty. you give me $20 million, I'll give you a whole lot of baggage in here. Um, but I think the important thing is really the person feeling valued. I think that's where you're coming from, that they don't feel you just take, 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 take. I mean, I remember I was in a negotiation with a lawyer, <laughs> with two lawyers, and uh uh, the white lawyer was carrying on and saying, I want this, my client wants this, this, and this, and this. And then he came to the end of it on the other side. The other lawyer, that was my, my boss at the time, said, is that all? <laughs> and he said, what do you mean that's all? I've asked for everything. He says, well, you haven't asked for his soul yet. I mean, you left something <laughs> out of this. You know? uh, so, so, you know, there, there's that demand, demand, and the other person feeling that there's nothing in this for me. or So it's trying to find a persuasion and the persuasion is if you do this there is a value for you so it's not necessarily i give you x you give me y but if we do a b c and d for you the value will be x y and z um there is a value you're not you're not being held hostage uh from that so that's what i think um uh, yeah, is, could I just come to Anne's in a second? I, I just want to yeah. reflect on Carl's as well because I think that's a great question and, and yeah. one of the things I um, uh, reflect on is the, the research around reciprocity and, and sort of some of the reciprocity effects of, in psychology. And, <laughs> and I think what, what is underpinning Carl's um, question is around the, the sort of presumption that people have that I give you one thing, you give me one mm. thing. And it's backed up by some of the mm -hmm. broader psychology research that shows that we, we tend to have that feeling like we you rock up to a Christmas party or something and well I, okay I, I feel very bad if you've got a present for me and I haven't got one for you yeah. but yeah. if I've got something for you it doesn't necessarily they don't have to be identical but I now feel much better that I've given you something if you give me something even though it's mm. not necessarily the same and there's great examples that Robert Cialdini sort of a psychologist mm. with several books has got a, like the um, <clears throat> Hare Krishnas and they give you a flower at yeah. the airport you don't want the damn flower, but now that they've given you a flower, then they ask for a donation. You give them ten bucks, and the, the flower's worth nothing. In fact, they've probably got it back out of the bin when you've thrown it away and given it to somebody else. But you feel this sort of obligation to make this reciprocal arrangement. So the implications of that, which would be, I agree with what you're saying, it shouldn't necessarily be a one-to-one -one ratio. But the implication is, if we feel like there should be this one-for-one -one reciprocity thing going on then I'm not going to give you my $20 million in return for your 10 things because it's not going to feel to you like I've given you much, even though it's $20 million. I'm going to break my $20 million into a whole lot of little tiny pieces <laughs> and go, oh, well, I give you this for that and I'll give you this. Now you feel like you've got 20 things, each one. For so it's, uh, yeah, leveraging the psychology. I can understand how people might not feel that it's a fair deal, even if they're getting a lot of stuff in one big lump. I, th I think part of that is that, but it's also how you, you frame it from the beginning. So it's how you frame your negotiation from the beginning. If it's like, you know, I've seen people who haven't prepared properly walk in and we start having this, you know, as I say, the dogs sniffing around each other. Then one person says something and say, ah, but if I'm going to give you this or that. But if you frame it in a way of saying, well, we're coming together to, you know, buy a business, we want to do it as amicably as possible. We have some ideas of how this is going to work. Um, and we, as I say, we we frame it as this is what the value is to you. 
if you provide this, this is a value for you. So it's not, a, it's not, I, if you see a negotiation as continually give and take, you often don't actually get the full value of the commercial practical outcomes. If you see it as we're going into this together to try and come to a good outcome for both of us, that's going to make us be able to work further together and sustainably it is a better way of dealing with it. So it's the way you frame it and the framing happens in the, I keep coming back to preparation. You know, if I'm just walking in and I, <laughs> it's held, you know, if I, I'm, I'm at the airport and the Hare Krishna guy hands me a flower, what the hell do I do? I didn't ask for it. You know, it's the same negotiation. If you come and you say, well, I'd give you like, you know, some seat, you know, some mats on the car floor if you'll do this. It's like, oh, but I wasn't looking for mats in the first place, you know. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right, so we go to Anne's, Anne's question. Thanks, Anne. <clears throat> trust between parties is paramount. Suzanne, how can you establish trust at the outset and avoid going into a negotiation with a heavy dose of scepticism? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, firstly, the scepticism might come after years of dealing with the same person who you know is going to prove problematic and that we can't, we, we, we can't account for. But I think the first start of trust is to create the agenda for the negotiation and some set rules. So if you can, firstly, be kind, be respectful and be nice. That's the first thing. And uh, one of the things that I'll do, and I know it sounds silly, but in preparation, I will have read up on everybody who's going to be in the negotiation room. Uh, LinkedIn is is very helpful. See what their likes or dislikes and, and start a negotiation by talking about anything but the negotiation. You know, oh, you support this footy team, you like the, the theatre, whatever, and we have a, a whole conversation before we start. The other with trust is a coming to the, the persuasion again. So when I'm looking at this, I'm saying, well, okay, when I'm asking you something, I'm not just asking for it. I'm coming with my information, my data, as we say in litigation, speak in evidence to show why I'm asking you for something. I'm not playing games with you. So... You know, I had a most brilliant negotiator, negotiation with an insurance company. I was acting for the developers. The builder had done something wrong, and this was the insurance company for the builder. And I, the builder had done something. There was no point in us prolonging something. So I went in heavy-handed with the information, the data, why we were coming in like that. And the insurance company was playing a game, and I knew they would because I've worked with insurance companies. So I said, I said, I know you're not going to try and settle this for cash flow reasons, and you're going to wait for me to server it. I'm showing you the evidence up front, right? I'm showing you what I've got up front, and I think that we need to talk seriously. We don't need to waste our clients' time. We don't need to waste our clients' money. Um, and we need to talk seriously. You've got all this information right? You can ask me any questions. You can ask for any data. You can ask for any evidence that you want for more, but we've got all this information ready for you. And this is what's going to be happening. And, you know, within two seconds, we built this trust relationship. We had a really good negotiation in two weeks we had resolved, right? But that's opening myself up. I am opening myself up and it is important. Sometimes when that trust is broken, so I say at that stage, it's everybody for themselves. And you've just got to, you know, look through the back for, uh, <laughs> for any like knives that might be thrown at you and, and come in fighting. And unfortunately, certainly in a lot of legal negotiations, that happens. And I know in the business world, um, that happens as well. Quite often you have people who think they're cleverer, they're going to come at you, they're going <clears> to <throat> play every game and trick in the book. And there's nothing you can do about it. You, you can only create your space. 
but you have to react to the others as well. Yeah. Uh, I'll just throw in a few things that occurred to me as well, which um, uh, each of these, I think I've categorised all these as more tactical than some of the the bigger tickets, the things that you've been talking about. But each of them, there's awesome uh, sort of psychological studies about. Um, One is just physical contact, like in, I don't know, is waitresses who sort of lightly touch the person on the shoulder or in, in negotiations, I think it's been tested as well. Even just having a little tiny bit of physical contact, you touch their arm or touch their shoulder or something, or little tiny bit of physical contact leads to better negotiated outcomes. I don't know, more tips for waiter, wait, wait, waitress stuff. I don't know, a bunch of things. A tiny little bit of touch. Um, that there's a similar studies about um, the um, uh, sort of mirroring their behaviour. So <clears throat> mirroring the way they speak, their tone of voice, their sort of uh, level of formality, the way they're sitting, are they sitting crossing their legs, are they facing the side, are they casual, are they sort of this sort of mirroring type behaviour, which is, I mean, it's there's actually mirror neurons that, that reflect some of this sort of yeah. stuff. Um, there's finding similarities, like your example about the yeah. football. I used to hate that. I used to hate going in, like, oh, for goodness sake, I'm not that interested. I just don't want to. And then since I've looked at this research about sort of in-group bias, that if you can yeah. find something similar, and it might not be the football or the theatre, mm. but I just have to find something similar. And I remember walking into a negotiation and the CEO that we were negotiating with had the same last name as me. Mm. Oh, then we had a conversation about, oh, yeah, but I think it's a French origin. It doesn't mean redhead or something. And mm. come across the Celtic. I don't know. I'm sure everybody else in the room was completely bored by this conversation. But it was just about finding a similar a point of similarity to get this in-group bias. Um, face the face-to-face stuff, like just the familiarity you get from face-to-face. I always say, well, you've got to get face-to-face early in the negotiation. It doesn't make as much difference doing telephone or email or whatever subsequently, but getting the rapport up front. Yeah. And then all this stuff about self-disclosure, which is partly that conversation about football and the theatre and whatever. But you've probably seen, or you might have seen these studies where they just get two sort of relative strangers they might be two mm. university students who don't know each other or I don't know, two people participating in a study and then you get them to go through this progression of one person tells the other person something relatively impersonal about themselves and then the second person says something relatively impersonal about themselves and then mm. it escalates slightly so it's something slightly more personal and something slightly more personal or something like and then and then as you go up this through this progression of slightly more personal increasingly more personal sort of disclosure about yourself you end up with these people who are having this sort of very sort of personal, intimate sort of, well, not sort of sexually intimate, although actually some people married after after going through this this, this process. So, so yeah. yeah, so that that process again, I used to hate that. I'm like, yeah. no, I'm not gonna, I'm not here to talk about myself. I thought that was sort of insulting to spend any time talking about myself. But now I feel actually no, I should be disclosing something about myself in this conversation because it's part of that whole trust and reciprocity type process of building rapport at the outset. But you too, yeah, well, there too. The one is I'm going to mention, if you want to see something not in kind of academic writing, but about mirroring, watch 30 Rock, um, the mirror negotiation. Uh, I'll just say that. Look it up on YouTube, 30 Rock um, negotiation. It will show you mirroring it at the best. Mm. Um, and then also, yes, in, in leadership, we often do that as and networking. You, you come in, you wear your little badges to, you know, tell me something about that you haven't told someone else or something that would shock mm. you. Uh, so mm. it is good as, as as to open the trust back. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. So we've got 10 minutes left. So I wanted to throw you um, a few little mini scenarios um, to you to say, well, what should we do in these situations? So we'll just maybe go through these reasonably quickly and then we'll have any further questions and then close off. What about the person you're negotiating with slams their hand on the table, mutters an expletive, or maybe shouts an expletive, storms out of the room? What would you do then? Well, I wouldn't storm it out after him, would be. <laughs> ah, you assumed it was a him. <laughs> oh, uh, yes. In fact, I'm thinking of a specific negotiation where that happened, actually. Oh, the trauma. Uh, so, you know, what what I would do is firstly I would sit in my place um, I, and importantly try not to get caught up in the anger because your heart will be beating normally when that happens at 100 miles an hour. You might feel angry, you might feel scared, whatever it is. Importantly, just sit quietly, take a few notes, talk about what he was saying before, make full notes, take five, ten minutes. If they haven't walked back into the room after that, <laughs> um, you, you go out and, and you go back to your office or wherever and you write you, you think to yourself okay now we've got to think do we want to continue with this negotiation at all if this is the behavior is this behavior something I'm prepared to accept am I prepared to continue if you're not you write a letter saying thank you that behavior we're not happy we're closing down and that's such an important question you don't have to stay in the room you have to make that mind up because when people behave like that they're going to be problems all along the way so you've got to think through that. Do I want to stay in the negotiation? If you do, you then work out, can I get rid of this person from the negotiation? Because often in business negotiations, there's a number of people. I, I once negotiated two people out of the business relationship. <laughs> we spent most of the negotiation getting rid of people who were in, initially negotiating because they were a block. So that, can, I, can I get rid of this person? Because I don't need this happening. It's just bullying behavior. And if I can't... Um, the next thing is to write, uh, is, and, and after that is to write the letter. And, you know, we refer we refer to this conduct. This conduct is unacceptable. It seems that we can't be in the same room together. We're now going to, you know, Simon, you said it's good to have face-to-face. -face. In that case, I'd close face-to-face -face and put everything in writing um, because this is a person who could cause a lot of problems psychologically for you, but also a lot of problems in the negotiation room. So revert to writing. If yeah. they want to slam their fist, they'd have to give you a meme or something. <laughs> yeah, and, and there's a couple of words that I really liked in there in particular that you said, it seems like. And I love those words because that's not me saying this is what's going on because I don't know what's happened. Is this person just broken up with his wife or who knows? There's, it's, we, we, don't, we, don't, we don't know the backstory, but also we don't know, is this person angry all the time? Are they particularly frustrated about something now? Is it the thing that I thought they're angry about mm. or is something else? I don't know. This anyway. So it, but if you say it seems like, then you're mm. being transparent, aren't you, about mm. this. From my perspective, it seems like this person, I can't work with them mm. because they're too angry or they have what it, it – but it's then inviting the other party to say, well, actually, you know what, we've got rid of him <laughs> or <Yeah. laughs> – or actually he had a really bad day and he'd love to apologise and continue or, yeah. or something, something, something. So I'd sort of, rather than saying this person is an a-hole or something, yeah. rather than being that, that's what, so I quite like that. Um, what about uh, an ultimatum? What if they say, this is the deal, take it or, or, or leave it? Well, at least say at some point all of us reach an ultimatum, but we don't term it as such in, in, in a negotiation. So there'll be a time when we come to something where we say, this is, we can't go any further. This is what we can 
what we're going to work with. This is what we are prepared to work on. So firstly, is it an ultimatum as in a bullying ultimatum? as in, you know, they think they're going to get the better of us. Um, is it that they've just got to that point in the negotiation they can't go any further? So this, this is where I'm at. That's it. And so you then need to take a step back and say, well, firstly, are they serious? Is this just another ploy? Is it a trick? Um, here's a tip. If a lawyer gives you an gives the ultimatum, say this is, this is the offer and this is the only offer and there's no further offer, ethically, we have to believe it at the time. Instruction. If we do that, and actually we know that <laughs> there's a lot of room for movement, there's an ethical issue there, and we can be found ourselves slapped with unethical conduct rules. So, um, firstly, that's a tip. So, if the lawyer says it's an ultimatum, it's, it's definitely genuine. an ultimatum. It's genuine. So, is the person playing games? Test it. Test it. If they are very serious, then you've got to work out, do I want to work here? Uh, you know, do I want to work with this person? Do I really want this deal? Am I prepared to concede everything or not? And if you're properly prepared and you've got your base of your outcomes of what you're prepared to work with and it fits, then you might say, well, that's okay. It fits most of what I'm looking for. I can live with this. This is what I thought was an okay deal. Let's go with it. Or you know what? They're an a-hole. You know, I don't want to deal with them bugger you and walk away because you're walking, you, you know, you have every right. This is something you have to believe. You have every right to walk away. You've got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, know when to run. And you can always walk away. Yeah. All right. One one last one then. What if you're dealing with a, a raving introvert who really just sits there and doesn't want to say anything at all? What, what would you do then? <laughs> I, I actually used to represent a raving introvert. Is that kindly? Um, it wasn't you, Simon. I just oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so the the important thing is is to not you know because if you're as verbose as I am, you're going to like you're going to you're going to talk through the silence and you're going to talk and talk and often you give away a lot because you're so discombobulated by this person's silence. The important thing then is if you see they're quiet and they're not going to interact with you, say, look, it looks like you need some time to think through it. Do you want to go away and think through it and come back with your answer in writing or do you just want some time? We'll go for a coffee and then you can come back and discuss it with us, right? And that works a treat because you're working within their personality and often the introvert is thinking there's a lot of complexity happening there and it's actually better well sometimes there's sometimes I think they're just thinking about their dinner but sometimes there's a lot of complexity going on and sometimes it, it might be better if they put it in writing so that you can think through because it's people like me who the boats who might not be as complex in the cut and thrust of a, a negotiation discussion yeah, and as a card-carrying introvert, I would say thank you for doing that because that's exactly what I feel sometimes. And like, okay, you've said a whole bunch of things. Can you please put it down in writing so I can think about it? <laughs> yeah. come, back, come back to you. So, yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, we've got about uh, two minutes left, so I might just give you a an opportunity just to give us a quick summing up. Like, if you had, say, maybe one key message that you'd give to negotiators, what, what would you say? I would say preparation and persuasion is key. So for any negotiation, there'll be tricks, there'll be things, you know, we'll talk anchoring, we'll call, we'll, we'll talk interest-based negotiation. We can put a whole lot of things in the mix. But if you are well prepared, 
and you've thought through how well you could persuade. You're prepared in a way that you can persuade. You should be able to get, if you're dealing with reasonable people, a good outcome. I call it a favoured outcome, a favoured outcome, one that actually sits in your favourite list of things that you wanted from the negotiation. So preparation and persuasion is the key to most good negotiations. Awesome. I don't know that I have anything to add to that. That, <laughs> that, that sounds great to me. Cool. So we don't have any more questions, but thank you for those who have contributed uh, through the course of this session. But they, um, they were useful and, um, yeah, they were interesting perspectives to share. So thank you for that. Um, I'll be cutting this into a podcast recording, which I'll make available um, very shortly. Uh, if you'd like to reach out to either me or to Elise, uh, please feel free to do so. Both of us are available on uh, LinkedIn. You can uh, get in contact with us there. Otherwise, thank you, Elise, for your time this afternoon and thanks everybody else. Thank you, Simon. Thanks, everyone.